certainly a privilege to be with you in this seminar. We are enjoying it. The uh, topic that's been assigned to me for this series of, uh, of messages has been something related to science and evolution. For those who are able to uh, come in the morning, if you would like to know, the, the, the topics that I'll try to be dealing with in the morning are those related to the age of the earth, to uh, all such things as the dinosaurs and radiocarbon dating and the gap theory and the day-age theory and all these topics like that we're going to be discussing tomorrow morning. Uh, tomorrow evening, Lord willing, we'll try to speak on the theme science and the second coming. And I think you'd be amazed how much scientific information there is in the scripture with, re with regard to the last days and to the days to come. Now, this evening, evolution versus entropy. Uh, some of you look blank. I wonder how many know what the word entropy means. <laughs> Maybe I, I better define it, I expect. But before I do that, I want to read a quotation from a man who's been called the high priest of evolution, Sir Julian Huxley, to indicate the importance of this topic, this subject. Many Christians, I'm afraid, have the idea today that this question of origins, evolution, creation, and so on, this is sort of, of a side issue. Let's not get involved too much in these controversial matters. Let's just preach the gospel. Well... I want you to understand that this is really not just a side issue. It's not a peripheral matter at all. As a matter of fact, do you know that the gospel includes the creation? Do you know that the last reference to the gospel in the scriptures, in Revelation 14, calls it the everlasting gospel? And then it goes on to say what it includes. It says, Fear God and worship him that made the heaven and the earth and the sea and the fountains of waters, for the hour of his judgment is come. And the hour of his judgment is about to come, and it's time that we get back to recognizing the one who did create all things. And this is part of the gospel. You can't really know the Lord Jesus Christ as Redeemer unless you first of all know him as Creator. And he did create all things. Now, Julian Huxley was the man, if you recall, who was the first Director General of the UNESCO. To give you an idea of the esteem in which he's held, he was the man who was selected to give the keynote address at the University of Chicago in 1959 when they had that great Darwinian worship service where all of the leaders of evolutionary thought from all over the world came to pay homage to Darwin on the centennial of the publication of Origin of Species. Julian Huxley was the keynote speaker there, and this quotation was from that speech. And the significant thing is that no one, apparently in all of that audience of leaders of biology and other fields of evolutionary thought around the world, raised any objection to what he said. And he said this, the first point to make about Darwin's theory is that it is no longer a theory but a fact. No serious scientist would deny the fact that evolution has occurred, just as he would not deny the fact that the earth goes around the sun. Well, so the uh, faint-hearted Christian sort of uh, says, but now, Mr. Huxley, can't we at least consider evolution to be God's method of creation? Can't we... If you insist that we accept evolution, can't we at least say that God started the process and keeps it going? No, Mr. Huxley answered. He says, Darwin, Darwinism removes the whole idea of God as the creator of organisms from the sphere of rational discussion. Darwin pointed out that no supernatural designer was needed. 
Since natural selection could account for any known form of life, there was no room for a supernatural agency in its evolution. We can dismiss entirely all idea of a supernatural overriding mind being responsible for the evolutionary process. And so those Christians who talk in terms of theistic evolution or creative evolution or creation or evolution as God's method of creation and so on, uh, they're really not in step with the leaders of evolutionary thought at all. Huxley and all of the other real leaders of the field of evolution are atheists. And those who know the most about their theory, why, to them, the, the very reason for having such a theory is to account for things without God. So this is what we're concerned with, and, Dar and Huxley and these others say that we simply have to accept evolution. It's a fact, and this precludes the idea of God, and so now where does that leave us? Well, we better be aware of the importance of this issue. It's not simply a biological theory, but it has literally permeated and pervaded the whole realm of our culture, every discipline in school from kindergarten through graduate school, except for occasional Christian teachers who are a very small remnant, actually. Every discipline is taught from an evolutionary standpoint today in our schools. And our communications media, our whole culture is uh, saturated with this. We'd better be concerned about it. Now, evolution versus entropy. And I use the word versus advisedly because entropy is a scientific principle which refutes the very possibility of evolution when it's rightly understood. It's a very important concept and we ought to know what it is. Now, suppose I define it in terms not of my own but of uh, Harold Blum who is a, an evolutionary biochemist, very outstanding man in the field of science at Princeton, and he discusses uh, entropy this way. And he speaks of the law of entropy. He says it's one of this law's consequences that all real processes go irreversibly. Let's consider a universe in which the total amount of energy remains supposedly constant. Any given process in the universe is accompanied by a change in magnitude of a quantity called the entropy. All real processes go with an increase of entropy. The entropy measures the randomness, or the lack of orderliness, of the system. The greater the randomness, the greater the entropy. Uh, you may not have caught all of that, but the idea is that entropy is a, is a concept which measures the disorder, or the randomness, or the, the, uh, the disorganization of any kind of a system or a process. And Blum says that in every process in the universe, uh, that process tends toward an increase of entropy, which means an increase of disorder. Now keep that in mind. Let's, uh, let's turn now away from the, uh, the definitions of men to the scripture. Do you know that entropy is a perfectly good New Testament word? It's in the, it's in the New Testament, not in the English New Testament, it's in the Greek New Testament. It's a word which uh, occasionally occurs in the, in the Greek, and it comes from two Greek words meaning in and in, uh, in turning, entropy, in turning, turning inward. And so entropy in its, in its basic uh, word meaning uh, has the concept of turning inward to feed on itself, as it were. It's, it's translated in the English New Testament usually by such a word as shame or dishonor or, or confusion. For example, 1 Corinthians 15, 34 says, Some have not the knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame. 
And that's the word entropy. I speak this to your entropy. Now, the, the thought there is that when, when there's something that has caused us to be ashamed, why we just don't want to face outward, we want to turn inward. We just want to kind of withdraw. We're just ashamed of ourselves. And that's the idea of the, of the use of entropy for shame. It's a little more easily conceived in the way that it's used in the Old Testament. Now, you know that the Old Testament, of course, was written in Hebrew, but it was translated into Greek in the Septuagint translation. And in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the word which in the English is translated by confusion was translated by entropy. For example, in Psalm 35, where it says, Let them be put to shame and confusion. And this gives a, better, a little better idea of the concept of entropy. It's something which is all confused, all jumbled, all disordered, disorganized. Just scattered randomly. That's the idea of entropy. And the thought associated with the law of entropy is that any system or any process, if it's just left to itself, to feed on itself, to keep itself going, it'll finally just run down. It'll become disordered. It'll be confused. It'll become chaotic, ultimately. That's the law of entropy. So that the principle of entropy says that every system, every process, every machine, every organism, every anything left to itself as a closed system, runs down. It becomes disordered. It, it wears out. That's why our clothing wears out. It's why our automobiles wear out. It's why our bodies wear out. It's why we get old. It's why we die. Everything tends toward a state of disorder and disorganization and decay and ultimately to death. Going back to the dust, this is the principle of entropy. Now, as we read from Dr. Blum, this is a universal law, the law of increase of entropy. Now, what about evolution? Evolution, which Sir Julian says is a universal law, which is a fact. Uh, let me read how he defines evolution. He says, The concept of evolution extends into other than biological fields, inorganic subjects such as the life history of stars and the formation of the chemical elements on the one hand, and on the other hand, subjects like linguistics, social anthropology, and comparative law and religion are studied now from an evolutionary angle until today we are able to see evolution as a universal and all-pervading process. Now there he's describing its extent, but now here he defines it. Now listen to this. Evolution, in the extended sense, can be defined as a directional and essentially irreversible process occurring in time which in its course gives rise to an increase of variety and an increasingly high level of organization in its products. And our present knowledge indeed forces us to the view that the whole of reality is evolution, one single process of self-transformation. Now, Sir Julian says, therefore, that every process is in, in the universe is engaged in a, in a self-transformation into a higher and higher state of organization, and complexity and variety and order so that as time goes on everything proceeds from simplicity and from chaos to order and, re and organization and complexity and variety continually in time this, this process ever onward and upward is going on everywhere throughout the universe so that the whole of reality is evolution now it seems to me I'm a little naive, perhaps, but it seems to me like Sir Julian and Dr. Harold Blum are saying exactly the opposite thing. One says that entropy and the law of increase of entropy is a universal and irreversible process which uh, results in an increase of disorder and increase of randomness. 
Huxley says, evolution is a universal process which continually results in an increase of order and, and, uh, and complexity. Well, it looks to me like each is exactly the opposite of the other. They're both processes of change, all right. There is a universal law of change in the universe. The law of entropy says that that process of change is changed down, run, everything running down towards chaos. Evolution says the process of change is upward towards order and complexity. Well, it looks like they can't both be true, certainly not on any universal scale like this. Now, as far as uh, evolution in its, in its own uh, word meaning is concerned, you recall that entropy means turning inward. Evolution comes from a couple of Latin words, not Greek, but Latin meaning rolling outward. And the idea is kind of a spiral. You start with a point in the center of the spiral, and then you begin uh, spiraling around, and as you go on out, uh, it covers a, a larger and larger area within the scope of the evolutionary process. I remember when I was in college, I wrote a paper for the calculus class on uh, evolutes. That's a kind of a mathematical curve. And that's the idea. It's a, it's a spiraling uh, curve. And the thought is that you start from nothing and you gradually increase until it embraces everything. The principle of entropy is that you start from order and you keep working inward until you have nothing but disorder. Very exactly opposite. Now, I can't illustrate evolution from the Bible. I've tried to find it, and I can't find it anywhere in the Bible. So. <laughs> but the, uh, the concept of entropy is in the Bible. For example, it says in the first chapter of Hebrews that God of old has laid the foundation of the earth, the heavens are the work of his hands. It says, They shall perish, but thou remainest. Yea, all of them shall wax old like a garment. As a vesture shalt thou fold them up, and they'll be changed. But thou art the same, and thy years have no end. And this is one example. There are many other places where this principle of wearing out and getting old and tending towards disorder and death found in the Scriptures. Now, in our modern technological world, we use this concept of entropy quite, uh, quite often. I, I used to refer to this in my classes in engineering every year. We talk about this for a while, and then... Uh, Always to the amazement of the students, it would turn out that entropy proved the existence of God. They, uh, they weren't expecting that when we started, but it does. But uh, the, the idea is that entropy, you see, is, is a turning inward, and we, we think of it in several different ways. For example, in, in studying thermodynamics or, or engineering or hydraulics, which is my field, or any other branch of physics or chemistry or science, uh, we're always concerned with energy. And energy, as we defined this morning, is measured as, uh, in, in the amount of work it does, energy is the capacity to do work, and everything in the physical world is energy, even matter being a form of energy, and everything that happens, every type of process, every machine, everything that happens in the world, is an exchange of energy. One type of energy is being transformed into another type, and in the process, work is being done. For example, uh, electrical energy is transformed into light energy. Or chemical energy in the gasoline is transformed into mechanical energy on the drive shaft, and so on. So that everything that happens is simply an exchange of energy. Every process is an energy conversion process. And the amazing thing is that although the energy is always conserved, no energy is ever created or destroyed in any such process, yet it always tends to become less available. Some of the energy which goes into the machine you don't get out in useful work, it just you goes to overcome friction. 
and in rubbing the bearings or whatever, it, it heats them up, and that uh, heat energy just escapes out into the atmosphere and warms the temperature of space a bit, and then it's gone as far as any further use is concerned. It's still there, but you can't use it anymore. That's why, of course, you can't have a perpetual motion machine. And it's why no machine or process is 100% efficient, because always some of the energy that goes into the system wears out and runs down, and you can't use it anymore. Well, uh, we, we, are con we measure entropy then in terms of the amount of energy which is siphoned off that way. It's the, it, it measures the unavailability of the energy of a system. That's one way that we define entropy. That's the, the, the method of classical thermodynamics. Now, lest that word scare you, thermodynamics also comes from a couple of good Greek words in the New Testament, so we're still being biblical here. Uh, thermodynamics means heat power, and both of these words are in the Greek New Testament frequently. And so the study of thermodynamics means a study of the power or the energy associated with heat. And in the uh, history of the development of our modern technological world, this all began back uh, in the Industrial Revolution where men began to realize they could convert steam into mechanical work, and so the steam engine was born. And that then led to the whole Industrial Revolution, finally, in our modern society. But also in the process of studying heat energy, it began to be realized that uh, this, this thermodynamics was much broader than just the study of steam engines. It really embraced all science because every process now we know is, a, is an energy conversion process. So we're concerned with other types of energy besides heat, like electricity and magnetism and sound and light and all the, all the rest, uh, even atomic energy. Well, the... The laws of thermodynamics, then, which were originally worked out for the study of steam engines, now are known to be universal scientific laws that apply to every process without any exception. And the first law of thermodynamics has to do with energy and says energy is always conserved, which means it is not created or destroyed, but it always stays the same in terms of its total amount. And then there's a second law of thermodynamics, which has to do with entropy. And it says that the entropy of any system tends to increase or the energy of the system becomes less available. That's the classical thermodynamic uh, definition of, of uh, entropy in the second law. But uh, after that, uh, thermodynamics began to be studied from a statistical point of view also. And so we now have the, the, the field that we call statistical thermodynamics. And here, entropy is defined in terms of, of a probability function, in terms of the degree of disorder. And the idea is, as Brum defined it, that entropy is a measure of the disorder of a system, and it's always more probable, you see, that a given system would be disordered than it is that it would be ordered. You know that from experience. If you go out on the field out here and you find a bunch of rocks, and if they're just scattered around every which way, why well, you don't think anything about that. That's just the way that they would naturally be. They'd be disordered. And they would have, therefore, a high entropy. But if you find that same bunch of rocks arranged in a nice geometrical pattern, a circle or something, then that isn't very likely. You, you say, well, that's, that's improbable, and so we have to explain how it got like that. We have to say that somebody came out and arranged them or, some, uh, or something happened to get those in that nice order because that would have a low entropy. And the probability is that the entropy would be high. That is, the disorder would be high. And it's possible to define this mathematically in terms of the state of of randomness of a system. The higher the randomness, the higher the entropy, the higher the probability. You still with me on this? <laughs> okay. 
Now, there's still another way in which, uh, more recently, that we uh, work with thermodynamics and entropy. In our modern computer age, our age of automation, our age of cybernetics, uh, we, we, we define entropy also in terms of the information that a system has. For example, if you have a, if you have a, a nursery rhyme book, well, this has a certain amount of information, but if you have a book that has uh, the treatise on relativity from Einstein, well, this has a higher amount of information. That is, theoretically, it does. It might not. <laughs> Everybody. And so it would have a low entropy. And so we define entropy in terms of the information content of a given code or program or, or book or something. And, well, take, for example, radio or television. If the, if the signal comes through plainly and clearly and the words are plain and the, the message is clear and understood, then it has a low entropy. But if you turn the dial and all you get is a bunch of random noise, a lot of static, then it has a, uh, has a high entropy. It's just static. It's, it's random noise. And so we define entropy also in terms of information. And there's a whole discipline worked out now called information theory or information engineering, which has to do with the design of computer systems and, and this sort of thing. Well, now, all these different ways of defining entropy really amount to the same thing. And it's possible to show that the definition of entropy in terms of unavailability, unavailability of energy and in terms of disorder, and in terms of static, that really they're all the same thing. Now, the mathematics that you have to use to show that gets pretty, pretty sophisticated, and we won't go into that, but it, uh, it can be done, has been done, and you can, kind of, uh, you can kind of intuitively see that, too, because, for example, in order to, to write a book that has a lot of information in it, a very nicely worked out uh, scientific textbook, say, or something like that, uh, the, the one who does that has to exert a lot of energy, has to impart a lot of information to that. He has to burn up a lot of energy of his own, in, in, in his brain and in his body and all, and he has to get that, that energy from the food that he eats and from the, uh, the exercise and so on. And that finally in turn comes from the plants and that from the sun and so on, so that all of these things are tied together. The information that you read in the book ultimately derives its physical energy, you see, from the sun. It's kind of interesting that the Bible talks about the sun. It says in the 19th Psalm, there is nothing hid from the heat thereof. If you ever stop to think about it, even everything in this physical world gets its physical energy ultimately from the sun. But, of course, the Lord has uh, more to do with it than just, just that. But at any rate, all of these different definitions of entropy are the same thing, and they all point uh, in, in exactly the opposite direction to the concept of evolution. Now... Let me, uh, so you won't have to just take my word on all of this, let me read from a couple of other authorities here. Uh, with respect to the universality of these laws of thermodynamics, of energy and entropy, uh, here's a man who might be an authority. This is Albert Einstein. And he says that classical thermodynamics is the only physical theory of universal content concerning which I am convinced that within the framework of its concepts it will never be overthrown. Now, you understand, then, that if there is such a thing as a law in science, if there is such a thing as, any, as something that science has proved, then these two laws of thermodynamics would meet that definition. There is no law or process or principle of science which is based on better evidence and more complete and universal evidence than these laws. These are scientific laws, if there is such a thing at all. One is the law of conservation, which says nothing is being created or destroyed. The other is the law of decay, which says that everything is 
tending toward death, disintegration. Now, someone would say, well, this is just maybe so, but statistically it wouldn't have to be that way. You could have exceptions to it, and so maybe you could have an exception in terms of the evolutionary process. Well, let me read here from another article in the, book, in the magazine Scientific American a couple of years ago dealing with this subject. And uh, here's an interesting comparison. The, he, and th this author says, Dr. Angrist, the fact that on the average entropy continually increases does not, of course, rule out the possibility that occasionally local decreases of entropy may take place. It's only that the odds against such an event are extraordinarily large. It could happen, he says, but then he goes on to calculate uh, how often it would happen and how probable it would be. And he, he points out that the chemist, Dr. Bent, has calculated the odds against a local reversal of entropy. And this would be on the very smallest scale, namely the possibility that just one calorie of heat energy could be converted completely into work. His result is expressed in terms of the familiar statistical example, the probability that a group of monkeys hitting typewriter keys at random could produce the works of Shakespeare. Now, you've seen that uh, comparison before, I guess. And he says, according to Bent's calculation, the likelihood of such a calorie conversion, that's just, just a very minute entropy reversal in the form of, a, of one calorie of heat, which is a very small quantity, says the likelihood that that could happen against the law of entropy is about the same as the probability that these monkeys could produce Shakespeare's works 15 quadrillion times in succession without a mistake. Well, well, it sounds to me like that entropy is pretty sure to increase. Things are pretty sure to go downhill, to run down, to get old and to wear out, to disintegrate. Now, let me also quote from an interesting article by Isaac Asimov. Now, if you don't know who Isaac Asimov is, he's the most prolific science writer of our day. He's, he's I think his field is biochemistry. You, has his doctorate in that, and he was on the faculty at Boston University until he got to writing so many books. That's all he has time to do now. He's written over a hundred, and uh, he writes regular columns in Science Digest and so on. Now, he's in, in this particular article, which was published by the Smithsonian Institute just last year, he's discussing these two laws of thermodynamics. He, first of all, defines the first law, so let me read that so you'll get his point of view on that. He says, the first law goes like this, energy can be transferred from one place to another or transformed from one form to another, but it can be neither created nor destroyed. Or we can put it another way, the total quantity of energy in the universe is constant. This is the first law. Nothing is now being created. Now, of course, that's what the Bible says. At the, end of the account, at the end of the record of creation in Genesis, it said the heavens and the earth were finished and all the host of them, and on the seventh day God ended his work which he'd made. Nothing is now being created, just like the first law of thermodynamics says. Did you know that uh, there are some scientific principles in the Bible? And they've been there for a long time before men ever found them out. And that's true with even this most basic and universal law, the first law of science. Now, he goes on and discusses the second law, and he finds it in these different ways that I mentioned. And then, here, let me read this, what he said. He says, another way of stating the second law is that the universe is constantly getting more disorderly. Now, viewed that way, he says, we can see the second law all about us. We have to work hard to straighten up a room, but left to itself, it becomes a mess again very quickly and very easily. Even if we never enter it, it becomes dusty and musty. How difficult it is to maintain houses and machinery and our own bodies in perfect working order. How easy to simply let them deteriorate. 
In fact, all we have to do is nothing and everything deteriorates. Collapses, breaks down, wears out, all by itself. And that's what the second law is. Everything tends to wear out. Now, then, of course, immediately, he has to face the question, well, then, what about life and what about evolution? If everything is running down and wearing out, well, how do we account for the fact that over billions of years, everything has been getting better? And, of course, the evolutionary system says that about 10 billion years ago, the universe condensed out of primeval gas of some kind. And about 5 billion years ago, the solar system, the sun, and the planets were formed some way. And about uh, 3 billion years ago, life evolved out of simple chemicals in the primeval ocean. And then more and more complex forms of life over the, uh, evolved over the past couple of billion years. Finally, man evolved about a million years ago. And since that time, man's societies have been evolving. We've been progressing into higher and higher orders of, of social happiness and bliss and perfection and so forth on the earth. And we're destined ultimately to come out with some kind of a utopia, world communism or something. Everything is getting bigger and better. And evolution is a universal law. So how come this contradiction? Well, he, he raises this question and he tries to answer it. He says, you can argue, of course, that the phenomenon of life may be an exception. Life on earth has steadily grown more complex, more versatile, more elaborate, more orderly over the billions of years of the planet's existence. From no life at all, living molecules were developed, then living cells, then living conglomerates of cells, worms, vertebrates, mammals, finally man. And in man is a three-pound brain, which as far as we know, is the most complex and orderly arrangement of matter in the universe. How could the human brain develop out of the primeval slime? How could that vast increase in order, and therefore that vast decrease in entropy, have taken place? And, of course, that's a real good question. Now, up to this point, Dr. Osimov has been a, quite a good scientist. But here, all of a sudden, he becomes a philosopher. <laughs> he says that the answer is it could not have taken place without a tremendous source of energy constantly bathing the earth, for it's on that energy that life subsists. Remove the sun, and the human brain would not have developed out of the primeval slime, or the primeval slime either. And in the billions of years that it took for the human brain to develop, the increase of entropy that took place in the sun was far greater, far, far greater than the decrease that's represented by the evolution required to develop the human brain. In other words, the answer is that we have the energy from the sun, so that all of the energy on the earth is running down, while the sun's energy is continually coming in, and there's enough energy there to keep the evolutionary process going. Eventually, of course, the sun would die out, I guess, and then some other star would have to take over to keep it going. And eventually that one would die out, and eventually the whole universe is going to die, and it's ultimately heading towards a heat death, they say. But then, of course, some other process may take over. Maybe the universe, instead of expanding, will begin to contract again. Or maybe somewhere out in space, energy is being created out of nothing, like uh, the steady state theory says. Well, maybe, all maybe. But uh, as far as what we see, we don't really see that happening. He then goes on and says, but where did it all start? If the universe is running down into utter disorder, what made it orderly to begin with? Where did the order come from that steadily, it is steadily losing? And then he says, now, listen here at the, at the rest of this here. It's kind of interesting what a scientist can say when he, when he begins to uh, philosophize. He says, scientists are still arguing the point. Some think the universe originally had its matter and energy all smashed together into one huge cosmic egg. A situation something like a tremendous deck of cards all arranged in order. The cosmic egg exploded. 
And ever since, for billions of years, the universe has been running down. The deck of cards is being shuffled and shuffled and shuffled. Others think that there's some process in the universe somewhere that's spontaneously decreasing the entropy, some natural process that unshuffles and reorders the cards. We don't know what it can be, perhaps because it takes place under conditions we can't observe and we can't duplicate in the laboratory. Say in the center of an exploding galaxy. Perhaps, in that case, as some parts of the universe run down, others build up. Then again, it may be that once the universe runs down, the random collision of particles may, after some unimaginable span of years, just happen to bring about an at least partial unshuffling. After all, if you shuffle and reshuffle cards ceaselessly for a trillion years, you may violate the second law and end up with an arrangement possessing at least some order just by the laws of chance. Fifteen quadrillion times the monkeys have to write this. <laughs> once that happens, the universe begins to run down again at once. Perhaps then we live in a universe that was partially restored to order after a quadrillion years of having been run down. We're now running down again. After the universe has completely run down, another quadrillion years or so may see a section of it unshuffled once more. Stars and galaxies will then form again, and life may be established here and there. Finally, some science writer will sit down and begin to wonder again where it all came from and where it'll all end. <laughs> well, maybe. <laughs> but you, you really, really shouldn't call that science, I don't think. <laughs> you see, science is knowledge. The essence of the scientific method is experimental observation and, and measurement and repeatability. And all that we observe, all that we actually measure, every experiment that we, we can actually perform always obeys this second law. Everything that we know about is running down. And the idea that somewhere, somehow, sometime, things get better, well, this is not science. We may believe it if we want to. We might have faith in that, but it certainly isn't science. It's a religion. It's, a, it's really a superstition. You have to believe in magic to, to believe that. But it certainly isn't science. Well... He did say I could have all the time. <laughs> so I'm, uh, I'm about to get started now. <laughs> what about this idea that, that Dr. Osimov has and that most evolutionists have that you can have, a, have entropy decrease on the earth over geologic time and support evolution? Uh, actually, this is the argument, or this is the answer, that the evolutionist will usually give if he knows anything about the second law of thermodynamics, which many of them don't. But if he knows, then he will say, well, but this only applies to a closed system. And the Earth is an open system, and the sun's energy keeps the evolutionary process going. Well, now, is that really true? What, what criteria have to be satisfied in order to have entropy decrease? This is the question. Now, there are at least four criteria. Now, you're pardon the, the technicalities here, but this is quite important because this is the real kernel of the evolutionary issue. What has to be accomplished in order for any growth to take place, any increase of order to take place? There are four things. In the first place, the system has to be an open system. Now, we define a system as a closed system or an open system, and depending on whether energy and information can get out or get into the system, if it's all closed so that it's just simply self-contained, and it just has to feed on itself, then, of course, it turns inward and its entropy, its in-turning, increases. But if it's open, then presumably, although it would wear itself out, if it were cut off, it can take energy from outside. 
So you can keep pumping gasoline into the into the carburetor and keep the car going. Or, in the case of say a plant, of course this is the classical example. They say, well, surely you see growth taking place all the time because a seed grows up into a tree, or an embryo grows up into an animal, or into a person. And so we see growth all the time, and this is just a, an illustration of evolution. So there's, you can have this local increase of order because it's an open system. Well, all right, you have to have an open system, admit it. And in the case of a seed, for example, the seed is an open system because it's accessible to the energy in the environment. The sun's energy and the water and the nutrients in the soil and so forth, all these can be absorbed into the system of the seed and, and grow and produce the plant. But there has to be more than just having an open system. The second criterion that has to be satisfied is that there must be energy available in the environment for that open system to use. Uh, and of course, in the case of the seed, there it is. It's the sun's energy. The sun is bathing the earth with all this marvelous radiant energy that keeps the world going. And it's there in the environment, so all the seed has to do is use it. And it grows up into the tree. Well, now, so far we're, we're okay. The, there has to be an open system, and there has to be an available supply of energy or information in the environment to produce the growth or the increase of order. As a matter of fact, though, uh, this is really not contradicting the second law at all, because actually, although we define this second law in terms of a closed system, in nature there isn't any such thing as a closed system. All systems are open. The closed system is simply a, a concept. It's an idealized construct of our minds, but it really doesn't exist. Every system basically is an open system. And the important thing is that these laws of thermodynamics have been proved on every system that they've ever been tested on. We can only test them on open systems because that's the only kind there are, and they've always been proved true. Nobody's ever found an exception to it. So they apply on open systems as well as closed systems. Of course, all we have to do is broaden the size of the system, and what was a closed system now is an open system, and then that's a closed system, and then we broaden it still more to finally we come to the whole universe, and we say that the whole universe has an increasing entropy. Well, okay, now we have these two criteria, but even this isn't enough. We have uh, a couple more that are equally important. Not only must there be an open system and energy available in the environment, but also there must be some kind of a coding system in this uh, seed or whatever it is, there has to be a code or a program or a pattern or a template of some kind in that thing that's able to convert the energy in the environment into the structure that it's, that it's building. Now, to see the importance of that, all you have to think of is, uh, is say, here we have on a, on a construction site a pile of construction material, bricks and iron and, and, and or sand and gravel and so forth, and we want to build a building. And, well, of course, all we have to do is just to recognize that that's an open system. It's out in the open. It's not closed at all. It's out in the open. It's a, it, the sun's energy is beaming on it. There's plenty of energy available in the environment. There's far more than enough energy that bathes that construction site to build that building. So it's an open system, and there's energy available. So all we have to do is just wait. It may take a million years or so. But eventually, given enough time, anything will happen. And so all we have to do is wait long enough, and that pile of construction materials will be a building. Will it? Of course not. It'll be just exactly the opposite. As time goes on, they'll rust out and wear out and go back to the dust. That's what will happen to them. The longer the time you have, the more disorder you have. That's what the second law says. 
So they have to have more than just the open system and energy in the environment. What you have to have is a code. There has to be a blueprint. There has to be some kind of a, of a guide to go by to put the bricks together and the steel together and everything in some kind of a pattern. Now, in the case of a seed, you see, what you have is what we call the genetic code. It's the marvelous, complex DNA molecular structure of the genetic system. It's exceedingly intricate, marvelously designed. It certainly didn't just jump out of nothing by itself. It's, it's a marvelous code. And, and if it were not there, then no matter how much energy there is in the environment, it would never build a tree. But the code is there. This template structure of the molecule is there and is able then to build on itself, and each little messenger uh, molecule tells the next one where to go and what, the, what kind of a cell to build and so on, and it, it builds up the tree finally. Same way with the growth of an animal and, and all. There's a code there, a very wonderful code, marvelously complex. And, of course, as time goes on, that code is subject to mistakes, which we call mutations. Something goes wrong with it, and it, gets, uh, it begins to wear out, and it produces uh, animals or trees and so on, which are not perfect, something wrong with them. And as time goes on, more and more of these accumulate, and it gets a big genetic load finally, and maybe eventually dies out as a, even as a species. This has happened over and over again. So, as you see, the code by itself doesn't get better. As time goes on, it gets worse. But it has to be there to begin with, or the growth wouldn't take place at all. But now, even that isn't enough. There's another criterion that has to be satisfied. Not only must the code be there, the pattern, the blueprint, but there must be some kind of an energy conversion process which will take the available energy in the environment and building on the pattern there, convert that energy into the type of energy that has to be utilized in the growth processes of the plant or the animal. In the case of the plant, that process is called photosynthesis. And it's a marvelous process. Even yet, scientists are still studying this, and they don't understand it yet very well. It's a marvelous, complex process for converting the energy of the sun into the growth of the plant tissue. It's a marvelous thing. And if, it, if that process weren't available, even with the code there, it would never grow. So you have to have all four of these things in order to have even a local, temporary decrease of entropy. And even at best, of course, it's only local and temporary because that tree is finally going to die and go back to the dust. And so is the animal, and so is the building. Everything eventually dies and wears out and decays and disintegrates. But even locally and temporarily, you have to have these four criteria, or you won't have it. Now then, apply that to the evolutionary system. And the good question is, where are these four criteria satisfied in the evolution of life from primeval chaos to the marvelous complexity of the organic world today over the past three billion years? Well, we have the open system, all right. That's the Earth. We have the available energy, all right. That's the sun. But where is the evolutionary code that converts solar energy into evolution? Or where is the process, the metabolic motor, that transforms the environmental energy into evolutionary growth from non-life to life to complex life to man and so on? Well, these things simply do not exist. And it's simply, it's simply misleading, at, to put it mildly, for evolutionists to say, well, all you have to have is an open system, and this takes care of the evolutionary question, and you don't have to worry about entropy. Uh, and so, the pr entropy principle absolutely precludes the possibility of evolution on any significant scale at all. Until the evolutionist is able to show us what this code is and what this process is, it converts the sun's energy into evolution. Now, he says, well, how about mutation? How about natural selection? Won't that do it? Of course not. Mutation is a disordering mechanism in accordance with the second law. Natural selection is a conservative mechanism which keeps things the way they are. 
It doesn't create anything at all. The, the, the evolutionists then will say, oh, yeah, but wait now, we have some answers here. All you have to do is just let it, uh, time will take care of it. We can't, we will admit that you really can't see much of it taking place right now because we only have a few generations to study, and this takes millions of years. So if you just have enough time, these small variations that we see, like the, the white moth turning into a dark moth or the insect developing resistance to DDT or some such thing as that, if you just give enough time, millions of years, while this will produce new kinds and evolution will take place. Oh, no. You see, the second law says that as time goes on, disorder increases. That's what the second law says. So just time doesn't produce order out of chaos. It produces chaos out of order is what time produces by the second law of thermodynamics. Well, nowadays, a lot of them are talking about what they call biochemical predestination. <laughs> now, I gather we're mostly Calvinists here, and so we believe in predestination, but do we believe in biochemical predestination? Now, <laughs> this may be a little different, and the, and the idea is that, the, that the, uh, the evolutionist says, the biochemist says, well, we'll have to admit that time alone really won't do it. We know that as time goes on, disorder increases. That's what Dr. Blum said a moment ago, you remember. But therefore, that proves that there must be something in nature, something in matter, something in the basic energy structure of the universe that just impels this randomness by some mechanism gradually to become orderly. It's built into the, into the very structure of the universe that, what, call it natural selection or whatever, something is going to just make it get better and better and, and more orderly. Well, all right, if they want to believe that. But, but uh, you see, in order to have a code and have a mechanism, a motor like this, a process, these are highly complex, and the only way we can produce things like that now is by intelligence. Of course, people are working in the laboratory trying to create complex chemicals from simple chemicals and so on, and they succeed to a certain extent in this, but in order to do that, they, they apply a high degree of intelligence, as well as hundreds of thousands of dollars of research funds to it that they get to, to do it with and, and all. And it just doesn't do it by itself. Well, whenever we have, then, a code or a program or a pattern, why, well, somebody has worked it out. Somebody has done the programming. Somebody has drawn the pattern. And so here we have this tremendous complex pattern that is assumed by the biochemical predestinationist in the beginning, where somehow there was a program built into the basic matter way back in the beginning which is going to just make the whole universe evolve itself into the high order that it now has, and all you have to do is just wait long enough and it'll work itself out. Well, in order to, to have this, you've got to have a tremendous intelligence to start it all off, or it wouldn't start. You've got to have this program worked out right from the beginning. And, of course, this is okay. We believe that God did that. He is the intelligence, and he worked it out. Only now, we, in desperation, some will say, all right, we'll admit that there must be a God back of this somewhere, some kind of a designer, some kind of intelligence that started the whole thing going. And so, uh, well, I call this idea theistic cybernetics. That, you know what cybernetics is? Uh, we've been discussing that a little bit t today. But uh, the idea is that it's a governing mechanism so that when the, when the machine or the process gets off track a little bit, the governor turns it back in the right direction, and it keeps it going in the right direction. It's a steersman type of thing, and this is what computer science and automation and so on are based on. Well, the idea here is, you see, that the, this intelligence, this designer back in the beginning, uh, thought up this process and worked out a kind of a pattern for it to go by, and then he left it to itself, and so it began to run down. And, of course, anything left to itself runs down by the second law. 
But every once in a while, he sees that it's going off track. It's wearing out a little bit. So he steps back in and gives it a, a new injection and gets it going again. And uh, then he lets it run for another million years and it runs down some more. And so he says, well, I've got to go back and do something about it. And he comes in and, and uh, gets it going again. He winds it up again. Uh, it's theistic cybernetics. You see, this is theistic evolution. It's, it makes God a sort of a, of a big... Uh, well, he's not very much concerned, but just every once in a while he comes in and takes a peek at what's going on and sets it back right again. Uh, he, he's a god of the gaps. Wherever we can't find a, an explanation for something, why well, then we allow, allow God to come in. Well, it, I don't know, but it seems to me like if we have to admit that there is such a tremendous intelligence to set the whole thing going in the first place, that that intelligence would be too intelligent to do it that way. <laughs> After all, what's the purpose of this, these ages of evolutionary meandering when God, who did it all in the first place, could just as well create it all fully developed and perfect right from the start, just like the Bible says he did? That would be, if God is really efficient, if he's the God of order, not the God, not the author of confusion, then that's the way he would do it. If he's a God of grace and mercy and his purpose was to create man, then why would he work for a hundred million years with dinosaurs, for example, and then decide they don't fit and let them die out <laughs> and try something else. It just doesn't make any sense. The kind of a God that would be, the, would be the God who could do all of this, he sure wouldn't do it that way. Well, it's in interesting that uh, nowadays, you know, talking about computers, it's possible to, to sort of check out this business about time used to, the evolutionists could say, well, you just give it enough time and it would work. We can't really show it on this small scale because we don't have enough time, but if you have enough time, it'll work. Natural selection, chance mutation, so on. So now that we have computers, you see, we don't have to have a long time. We can simulate on a model basis processes that would otherwise take a long time. And so instead of waiting a million years for a million different cycles of reproduction and generation and so forth to take place, we can write an equation for this process and program it on a computer and model it that way and, and do this million cycles in just a few days maybe and see how it works out. And people have actually tried to do this. They've tried to start with some kind of a random distribution of characteristics that they would, that would correspond to genetic characteristics and then impose some kind of a, of a mechanism on that which in some way could generate every once in a while an increase of order out of that randomness like natural selection is supposed to do. You know, the idea is that chance mutations take place, and every once in a while one of them is good. Most of them are bad. But once in a while there's a good one, and natural selection will preserve that and build on that one, and then another, some time later there'll be another good one and build on top of that and so on. So you have a random distribution uh, acted upon by some kind of, a, of an occasional ordering process which supposedly will act like a kind of a, of a ratchet mechanism. It'll just preserve the good ones and let the others die out until finally you get the whole organic world. Well, this is, people have tried to simulate this on a computer. But it's interesting that every time they've done this, the computer always jams. <laughs> it won't work. It'll just work, run and run and run and won't get anywhere because you just simply can't have an occasional ordering mechanism imposed on randomness to produce total order. It just won't do it and the computer won't make it do it. It just, no matter how many millions or billions or trillions of years you have, it would never work. The second law of thermodynamics says it won't. And as far as we know or can test or observe or, or imagine in terms of any real valid test, it just will never work. 
evolution is precluded by entropy. Now, Sir Julian can believe it if he wants to, but he certainly ought not to tell us that evolution is a scientific fact because it's anything but that. The fact is that evolution never has existed, never works, and won't work. That's what we know as far as science is concerned. Now, I just can't go on much longer here, I know, but the, let me just quote from one or two other references here. Uh, what about the origin of life? We're always reading about uh, these test tube studies where people say that they have taken a virus and reproduced it, or they've built a DNA molecule, or they have made a living cell out of chemicals and so on. And, of course, what you read in the paper is... Uh, is a kind of a popularized version, and it makes it sound like they've created life. But when you go to the scientific journals and see what actually has happened, they haven't done anything like that at all. Uh, anything but. In, in order to what, what they do is to is to take something that they already have and apply some living material to it, an enzyme or or another protein molecule or something else or a living cell, and and then rebuild it or build on top of that, but they always have to have something living to start with if they get anything really living to end with. Now, furthermore, it is possible, all right, to take certain chemicals and make more complex chemicals out of them. And some of the most widely publicized experiments have been simply that. They've taken uh, basic materials like uh, uh, nitrogen and oxygen and so on and have, by bombarding the mixture with uh, electrical discharges and so on, have made amino acids, which are con constituents of living material, and this is supposed to be a, a step in the direction of creating life. But actually, the, the, simplest, the, the simplest thing that you could, by any stretch of the imagination, call life would be a simple protein molecule, and not all protein molecules, of course, but let's say a simple protein molecule, and you'd have to be able to construct this out of basic chemicals. And let me see if I can find this here. Here's Dr. Blum again, who is a one of the world's leading biochemists, and he certainly knows this field, if anybody does. And he says this, Let us examine the possibility of the spontaneous formation of protein molecules from a non-living system. The spontaneous formation of a polypeptide of the size of the smallest known proteins seems beyond all probability. And there he's a scientist, but now he also becomes a philosopher. He says, but we can't discount the idea that one or a number of improbable events that were essential to the final achievement of protein synthesis may have intervened in the course of chemical evolution. Well, maybe it did, but it's, it, he does say it seems beyond all probability that it could have. And now later, than, later after he had written that, here just a few years ago, Dr. Golay, who is an information engineer, examined this a little more carefully and he does it on the basis of comparing it with with a computer. And you know, people are talking about the possibility that we can eventually design computers which will be living, they can reproduce themselves, build new computers, which can build new computers and so on, and, and be, in, to all, all intents and purposes, living things. Well, now, he looked at it from that direction. He says, let's, let's try to build a machine that can do that, that can build another machine just like itself, which can then build another one and so on. Suppose we wanted to build a machine capable of reaching into bins for all of its parts and capable of assembling from these parts a second machine just like itself. Then he asked the question, what is the minimum amount of structure or information that, ought to, that, that should be built into the first machine? The answer comes out to be of the order of 1,500 bits. That doesn't sound like so much. 1,500 bits. And by that he means 1,500 choices between alternatives. The idea is 
that here's a couple of bins over here that's got two parts in it, and the machine has to decide which bin to reach into and get make the right choice. Well, he's got a pretty good chance. One out of two, he can the, the machine can reach into that bin, and if he if he, he has a fifty percent chance of getting the right one, but then he puts that one on himself, and then there's another pair of bins over here. Now he has to reach into this pair and decide which of those two is right. Well, maybe again he'll make the right decision, or it'll make the right decision. And, and so on. He has to, it has to do this 1,500 times in succession without a mistake. And this is what it means. If it, could, if it could do that, if it could make 1,500 choices in succession without a mistake, then theoretically it could build a machine just like itself, which would be able to build another one and so on. Now then he goes on to say, this answer is very suggestive because 1,500 bits happens to be also of the order of magnitude of the amount of structure contained in the simplest large protein molecule, which, immersed in a bath of nutrients, can induce the assembly of those nutrients into another large protein molecule like itself, and then separate itself from it. Now then he calculates uh, what this means. 1,500 choices in succession. The probability against it, you see, is 2 raised to the 1,500th power. Those of you who know anything about the probability uh, statistics and so on. 2, the number 2, raised to an exponent of 1,500. That would be the probability that that would not happen. 2 raised to the 1,500th power. Then he compares that with the probability that it could have happened just once in the universe in all time. Now, say, say that the universe is 10 billion years old, and it's 4 billion years, light years in radius and so on. These are about the dimensions. Now, the probability that this could have happened just once in all the universe in all time is 2 raised to the 220th power, he says. The probability against it is 2 raised to the 1500th power. So the difference is the, is the net probability against it. And you can see, well, maybe you can't see, maybe you don't understand what these numbers are, but they are tremendous. It, it, for all intents and purposes, it just says it's absolutely, completely, absurdly impossible that this could ever have happened even once anywhere in all the universe by natural chance methods. And to compare it, he says, the probability that this could have happened is 2 to the 220th power. The probability against it is 2 to the 1500th power. Then he takes all the books in all the world that have ever been written, and, of course, these have information in them now. That's, we're going back to information theory. And say that each book has maybe 300 pages, and say that each word on the page has a, a bit of ordered information. probably doesn't. You probably have to have several pages before you get very many bits of information out of most books. But uh, at any rate, say something like that. And he calculates that all the books in all the world that were ever written only have 2 to the 60th power bits of information in them. Well, okay, you, I, I think you can see that this just means that even the simplest protein molecule could never in all the ages in all the universe ever have been formed by chance variation, by natural, normal, random processes. It just can't be. The only way it could be is for God to do it. And if he did it, then he would probably do it the way he says he did it in the Bible. Well, I, I know, I must close, we could talk about mutations and the probability against a good mutation. This is also infinitesimal. Practically all mu mutations are harmful. This is the mechanism that evolutionists say produces evolution. Here, Dr. Waddington, who is a prominent geneticist in England, says it's true that we know of no way other than random mutation by which new hereditary variation comes into being. And well, just here I've got several of these. I'll only read one of them. Here's an article from Science in which he says, Certainly the vast majority of mutations must be harmful. So if the organs of older animals contain appreciable numbers of cells which are carrying mutations, it is a virtual certainty 
that the organs are functioning less efficiently than they should. Practically all mutations are harmful. This is the only method that the evolutionist says can produce evolution, but would produce it just the opposite. It makes the animal die out or become harmed, or finally even the species might do. That's why we have so many extinct animals. They finally just died out because they weren't equipped, and the passage of time made them less equipped. Natural selection tends to keep that from happening. That's why I say it's a conservative process. Those animals that experience mutations, natural selection sees that they die out and the good ones stay living, so that uh, on, the, on the average species continue. But mutation and natural selection could never produce new higher orders in, in any number, in any amount of time. Well, I can't uh, continue with that, but uh, just before closing, I do want to uh, raise this question. How come things are this way? We know they're this way. Science has proved this as well as it's proved anything. Everything tends to run down and die and wear out. The second law of thermodynamics is a universal scientific law if there is such a thing. Well, why? Why do things get old and die? Why does everything decay and tend towards extinction? We talk about the fossils proving evolution. But the fossils, what they prove is extinction. Just exactly opposite. That's what they are. Dead animals, extinct animals, dinosaurs. We know that the dinosaurs died out. We have their fossils, but we don't know how they got there in the first place. They, they, there's no evidence of how they evolved. What there is evidence is how they became extinct. Now, you find this not only in the realm of uh, physics and biology, but also in the realm of culture. And Have you ever stopped to think? Just like animals are born and grow and then die, so do societies. And cultures and nations, they grow for a while and thrive for a while and then they die out. Languages, same way. The most complex languages are in the most primitive tribes that haven't had the opportunity to be contaminated by civilization. But uh, take our English language, it's a, it's a decadent remnant of what it once was in Shakespeare's day, for example. Our modern English is not at all as complex and as capable of expression as uh, Elizabethan English was. Every, every system tends to wear out and to become decayed. Morals and religion, the same way. Why is it that if you just let yourself go, you go down? You know that you don't just automatically get better and do good and, and be right. You, if you let yourself go, you go down. You become a closed system, you feed on yourself, and you go down. Why is that always true? Well, we know it's true. Science knows it's true, but it has no idea why it's true. Science can't tell us the answer to that, but the Bible does. The Bible says it wasn't that way in the beginning. It says in the beginning, everything was good. God saw everything he had made, and it was all very good. There was no decay or disorder or suffering or death or disease or anything like that. Everything was perfect. But the thing that went wrong was sin. Sin came into the world, and the Bible says, by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin. Death came into the world, and sin came into the world. And God said to Adam, Cursed is the ground for thy sake. The very dust of the earth out of which your body's been formed, Adam, is going to be brought under the curse of decay and death, and you're going to go back to the dust, and the animals are going to go, and the whole dominion of yours is going to go back to the dust because you've sinned. You've listened to the word of a creature instead of my word. That's what his sin was. And so God pronounced the curse of, of decay. The New Testament says the whole creation is groaning and travailing together in pain until now. Romans 8.20, God has subjected the creation unto vanity, not willingly, but by reason of him who hath subjected the same in hope, because the creation itself also shall be delivered from this bondage of decay into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groaneth and prevaileth in pain together until now. And as far as our own personal experience is concerned, we see this in our own lives. Paul says, uh, says I, I, I see a law 
that when I would do good, evil is present with me. So I, I recognize that the law, with my mind, I serve the law of God. But then I see another law in my members, which wars against the law of my mind, and brings me into captivity to the law of sin and death. O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? And then he says, I thank God through Jesus Christ my Lord. And there's the only answer to the second law. The creation someday shall be delivered from this bondage of corruption and decay. Waiting, we're waiting now, it says, for the manifestation of the sons of God when the Lord Jesus comes again. Well, do, do we want to know how to get power when power is running down? That's what energy is doing. It's becoming less available. But where do we get this? From the one who created power in the first place. The Lord Jesus has all power. By him were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth. How do we get uh, order when everything is becoming disordered? Why, well, it says he upholds all things by the word of his power. He's the one in whom all things hold together. He's the one that has order. How do we get information when everything is becoming static and random and disordered and, and confused? Well, he is the word. He's the Alpha and the Omega. He's the one in whom is all wisdom. In him are hid all the treasures of knowledge and wisdom. And, of course, the marvelous work of redemption on the cross, when he became the curse for us, when he took the sin of the whole world in his own body on the tree, he bore our sins, he was made sin for us. And then not only so, but he was raised again from the dead, victorious over the law of sin and death. I am he that liveth and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Death hath no more dominion over him or over those who are in him, because he has delivered us from the law of sin and death. Well, I must close. Let me just close by referring back to a marvelous chapter in Isaiah, chapter 40, which you're familiar with. Lift up your eyes on high, and behold, who hath created all these things? Bringeth out their host by number. He created them. He has all power. He brings out the host by number. He's a source of all order. He calleth them all by names, by the greatness of his might. He's a source of all information. He is strong in power. Not one faileth. Hast thou not known, hast thou not heard that the everlasting God, the Lord, the Creator of the ends of the earth, fainteth not, neither is weary? There is no searching of his understanding. He has all information. He giveth power to the faint. For them that have no might, he increaseth strength. Even the youth shall faint and be weary, and the young men shall utterly fall. But they that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength, or literally exchange their strength. There's an energy exchange process for you. We exchange our weakness for his strength. They shall exchange their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not be weary and walk and not faint. Well, thank you, the Lord bless you. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780 780- Four five zero thirty seven thirty by fax at seven eight zero four six eight ten ninety six or by mail at forty seven ten dash thirty seven A Avenue Edmonton that's E D 
M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle is adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important. When he says that God had commanded no such thing, and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.